Hi, I'm Jackie Tantillo, and this is Should Have Listened to My Mother. Who teaches us how to handle a crisis? In a perfect world, as a mom, you learn to handle tearful bumps, bruises and cuts, sleepless nights with endless vomiting and fevers, broken bones, and the list goes on and on. But when a truly nightmarish crisis happens, who is it that reassures you that it's all going to be okay? For the most part, no matter how old we are, at times we could all use a hug from our mom and hear her comforting voice that everything is going to be okay. My guest has a truly harrowing story to share, but what's key is the gift she embraced to help her family survive. And here to share her story is Rachel Bruno. Welcome to Should Have Listened to My Mother. Hi, Jackie. Thank you for having me on. Rachel is a wife and a mom of two boys. She's got a bachelor's degree in communications and an MBA from Pepperdine University in California. Uh, I'm curious, did the MBA come before or after 2015? Before. Before. Okay. So your life has pretty much changed, I would imagine. You seem to have had an awakening, per se, and and we're going to get into the story of what happened to you and your family. But I always like to begin to know who the conversation will be about your mother. Can you tell us what your mom's name is? Yes, my mom is Teresa. Teresa. Yes. Okay, and where does your what is your uh, your family background, your heritage? Where do you where's what is your lineage? Are you European? No, we are from Brazil. I was born in Brazil. And you've been in the U.S. for how long? I came here when I was three years old, so I've been here for about thirty-five. That's nice. So you're okay. <laughs> you're <Yeah>. safe in <laughs> the U.S. That's a huge thing. We always took that for granted, didn't we? Uh, yes. And faith has a lot to do with this story. And I love how in your notes that I read while doing some research that you rebelled quite a bit yes. against the faith <laughs> as a teen. Can you tell us what that was like growing up? Well, just to backtrack a little bit, you know, my father died when I was nine months old. And we were in Brazil. My father was a doctor. He was the sole breadwinner. So my mom became a widow and single mother at the age of 28. She was. My dad was also a pastor, and due to him being a pastor, when he passed away, a church here in America asked my mom if she would want to come to the United States. And that's ultimately how we ended up here when I was three years old. Wow, that's a huge undertaking. Did she bring any family members with Nothing. you? Nothing. Mom didn't speak English. My mom had a high school education. My mom knew absolutely nothing. <laughs> wow. That's a lot. That's scary. Yeah. It is very scary. But, again, I never saw my mom's face waver once. You know, why she came with me in her arms and... We moved in with an American family, and to this day, really, we just laugh about all the adventures we had those first two years we were here. <laughs> I bet. I bet. In hindsight, it's always so easy to laugh, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we should all keep that perspective when we're going through tough times. 
Did you have a relationship with your maternal grandmother, or did they come to the States with you? No, they never moved to the States, but they were obviously very strong women in my life. I would say especially my paternal grandmother, who is the one who lost her son, right, my father. And again, never seen my grandma's faith waver once. Right, my grandma would look at me with just these eyes, you know, pure love. And she would always tell me how much I reminded her of my father. Oh, that's so and hard. <laughs> it is. <laughs> but she loved me, right, unconditionally through her pain. Right, she loved me. And she would joyfully tell me all the stories about my father and how I reminded her of him. You're growing up here in the States. You're, I guess you're learning English from your encounters with these, this family that was hosting you, and, and you're moving on, and you're becoming a teenager in the U.S., and faith didn't really seem that crucial to you, correct? Correct. You know, I just mentioned being compared to my dad, and as a teenager, I think the devil's lies started getting in my head, and that little voice would often tell me, you know, they, they don't really love you for you. They love you because you're your dad's daughter. Oh, right? and no. They love really? You really yes. thought that? Yes. Hmm. Okay. I felt that, and, you know, it was big soup to fill. My dad was a doctor. My dad was a pastor. He started a church, and I was the only heir, so to speak. And no siblings to this day, half-siblings? No. Yep, no siblings to this day. What was your mom, Teresa's, philosophy in, in getting you through this tough period? Yeah, I mean, my mom, you know, my mom, I call her the, the queen of tough love. <laughs> oh, <laughs> one of those. <laughs> yes. Okay. Did I it work? I was very strong-willed, right? I was strong-willed. I was... I didn't want to listen, right? I didn't. I wanted to find my own way. And sometimes, as they say in Brazil, you have to break your face in order to find your way. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and she would, she would let me. You know, she would let me. But she was always there to pick up the pieces when I did. Right. I mean, how serious were you? How serious or rambunctious a rebellion were you? Were you sneaking out, out of the house at night, or were you? It was mostly against her, like her authority. Yeah. Right? If she would tell me I couldn't do something, oh, yeah? Well, let me show you. I will do it. <laughs> and she never remarried? She remarried when I was 15, 15 years old. And the relationship with your stepfather, good or? Yes. He was very good for that time, exactly because me and my mom were at each other's throats. <laughs> so he was kind of the buffer between us. He would be the buffer between us because he could relate to my side of the story, and he could also hear her side of the story. What was it that allowed him to relate to your side of the story? Honestly, the whole culture thing. You know, my mom was born and raised in Brazil, and I was raised in America. And there are a lot of cultural differences <laughs> between those two countries. Yeah. Well, different generations, right? And, and kids right. often have to step out and, and feel their own way. 
Right. And me going, I was going to a Christian school at the time. And again, all these people knew my dad. All these people knew my mom. And I always felt like I was, you know, living under a microscope with all these people watching me and that I had to be perfect. And I guess as a way of self-sabotage, since I couldn't, I didn't think I could live up to those standards, I would rather rebel. But yeah, that's not an unusual teenage knee-jerk reaction, right? That's right. You know, that's all. That's a lot of weight to carry for a young kid. So you went to college. You got married. You're a professional mom. You have two boys. Yep. And your mom was involved in her grandson's upbringing. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And even before, you know, my mom always told me. When you get married, you go travel, you finish school, you start your career, you do everything before you have kids, because when you have kids, that changes everything. And you did that. You did all of that. I did all of that. You listened you know, to your mother. I, <laughs> I did. At that point, I did, and I am very happy I did. <laughs> oh, good for you. Yes, because my husband and I got married. I went to school. We traveled the world. I mean, we were married for 10 years before we decided to have kids. Oh, that's great. That's fun, right? I think that was good advice. Have fun. I mean, it works yeah. out either way, but I, I I like that idea. That's wonderful. So we fast forward. You have mm-hmm. one son, and then in 2015, you have a second baby, also a son. And you're woken up in the middle of the night. And Mm -hmm. something changed your life. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Yes. I mean, I have epilepsy. I have seizures. And one of the main triggers to my seizures are sleep deprivation or interrupted sleep. So all you moms out there know that if you have a newborn, you ain't sleeping. So I had a nanny take care of my son during the night shift. And this particular day, I woke up to him screaming at about 4 o'clock in the morning. And I looked at my clock. I figured she was feeding him or changing his diaper. The crying kept coming and going, coming and going. So I finally got up. I went into the room and asked her, you know, if anything happened. And she just showed me the empty bottle and told me, I just fed him. He's really gassy. And I thought to myself, okay, fair enough. Babies get gassy, right? This wasn't my first time around. So at that point, I tell her, you know, he's not settling down. I'm already awake. So, you know, why don't you just go home early and I'll take it from here? So I did. I unswaddled him. He took his clothes off, see if there were any rashes, see if his nose was runny, was there any leakage from the ears. I mean, anything you can think of, right, when taking care of a newborn. And there were no signs, no physical signs of anything. So I just laid him down on my chest, gave him skin to skin, and he falls asleep on me. So I said, okay, he just wanted your mommy. And four hours later, he wakes up screaming again. And I go, okay, last feeding, right, three hours ago, you're hungry. I tried to nurse him, and he would not latch for some reason. Never had any issues before. So I thought that was a little strange, but my thought was kind of jaded because she told me he was gassy. So I'm thinking colic, nursing strike, you know, something to that nature. Six hours later, nonstop crying, no napping, no feeding, I mean, it was, I did not, it was miserable. I don't know what was wrong with him. I called my mom. I'm like, Mom, please come here. (laughs) Help me. So she comes over, and she undresses him. She takes a look at him, and she just looks at me, and she says, Rachel, I don't know what's wrong with him. 
he just looks like he's in a lot of pain. So I called the pediatrician. Pediatrician tells me not going to be able to see him until the afternoon. I said, no, I need to see somebody. He's been crying since 4 o'clock this morning. He's not eating. He's not sleeping. The receptionist tells me, okay, then take him to the emergency room. We get to the emergency room. Doctor tells me to lay him down and steps away, probably about 10 feet away, and just observes my son for about a minute. And he starts walking towards the table, and he puts his left hand right behind his left ear. He says, did you feel this? I said, no. So he grabs my hand and makes me touch it. Do you feel that bulge? I said, yeah. That's fluid that's leaking from your son's brain. And when he said that, I just freeze. I'm like, what does that mean? spinal cerebral fluid or it can be blood we need to go do a ct scan right now and see what's going on and when he says that about 10 people rush into that room start placing probes on him tubes and just going complete chaos in that room meantime my mom is sitting on the on the chair with my 20 month old son at the time david and we're both just looking at each other like what has happened they take my son to the CT room, they come back, and the doctor tells me, this is very serious, Mrs. Bruno. I said, yeah. It's a cranial fracture and an intracerebral blood hemorrhage. So the fluid that's leaking is blood. The brain hates blood. We need to go do emergency surgery right now. So again, I went from gassy baby to now my son is in brain surgery. And signing all the liabilities. Do you care about blood transfusions? Like, I don't care what you have to do to save my son, save my son. And they wheel him off at seven weeks old to the operating room. So I'm there, just me and my mom and my 20-month-old son, David. My husband was out of state on a business trip. And my mom holds my hand. She's like, Rachel, just pray. Let's pray. We start texting our families in Brazil. We start texting our ministry pastors, you know, people that we've known throughout the years here in America. Everybody just start praying. Four hours after the surgery, the surgeon comes, comes and gets me, tells me everything went well. Clinically, as far as they're concerned, they were able to drain the blood. They were able to fix the fracture. And my first question, is he going to be okay? Is he going to be brain damaged? The doctor tells me we really don't know. Due to his young age, he's in a medically induced coma right now because he started having frequent seizures after the surgery. We don't know whether he's going to survive the next 48 hours. So of me just processing all these thoughts, and I go and tell my mom. And my mom tells me, don't listen to the doctor, Rachel. You listen to God right now. God is the healer. God is the doctor of doctors. And I held on to those words. And I went upstairs to the PICU where my son was laying on the bed, seemingly lifeless. Tubes coming out of every orifice you can imagine. The machines beeping, freezing cold in that room. And I held my baby's hand and I remember praying. And God, I don't care if I have to dedicate the rest of my life to taking care of my son. I will. Just don't take him away from me. And the Holy Spirit intervened right there. I 
all those words in my head, I felt them in my heart, said, he's mine. I gave him to you. Nobody's going to take him away from you. So next thing I know, social services, the police, and the detectives are at the hospital, and they ask to interview me. I tell them everything that happened from 4 a.m. that morning until that day at the hospital. And they told me they were there to help me, help me figure out what was happening to my son. I go to sleep at about 2 o'clock in the morning, and I wake up at around 10. And my husband, back from his business trip, is just staring at me, just blank stare on his face. My first instinct is to look at the baby, like he's alive, what's going on. And my husband tells me they took David. What do you mean? What? Who? What do you mean they took David? Where? And he tells me social services showed up at your mom's house at 2 o'clock in the morning with three police cars, and they took David. And I'm shocked. I'm like, they liked me. You know, they said they were helping me, and they said they were going to see if he was okay. I had nothing to hide. I didn't know. So I called my mom. My mom tells me, you know, they showed up at 2 o'clock in the morning, and they tell me they're going to take him. And that if I did not give them to him, that he was going to be arrested. So it is now 10 a.m., and we do not know where my son is, where they've taken him to. Calling the supervisors, and I start calling lawyers. And the lawyer tells me, you're not getting your kids back. I'm like, what are you talking about? I didn't do this. He's like, I believe you. It doesn't matter. I said, it doesn't matter. What happened to innocent until proven guilty? What happened to the nanny? I, I didn't do this. He's like, I believe you. Listen to me. What happened to your son is criminal. You are facing 15 years in jail, $100,000 bail if they decide to charge you. Your saving grace is that your husband was out of town when this happened. We're going to ask the judge to give full custody to your husband. That way they don't even risk going into foster care because if the case lasts longer than six months, they can be legally adopted by the foster parents. Now I'm nearly falling off my feet at this point. What choice did I have? So, again, call my mom crying. What is going on? <laughs> uh, what country am I living in? Like, how is this happening? And, again, my mom's constant reminder, God is faithful, Rachel, God is faithful. Talk about a lifeline, being able to call your mom. <laughs> That's huge. And I know, I know you, you and your husband have a what I know to be a wonderful relationship. So, but to be able to call your mom is a plus. Well, nobody could understand this, right? This was like mom to mom, right? Can you imagine you as a mom having your newborn taken away and then having your 20-month-old baby taken away? During this time specifically, like my husband, being the rational man, <laughs> couldn't really relate to me on that level of being a mom, right? That bond that you have with the baby that you just had. And I was exclusively breastfeeding him, right? I was nursing him. All that came to an abrupt end. And I remember him asking me if I was pumping. <laughs> and I'm like, I know, like nothing comes. Right. You know oh how my stressful gosh. this is? So many layers. And then they took... David is your younger son. They took your older son, rather, and, and they wanted to make sure that he hadn't been harmed in any way by whoever this abuser was. So that's another additional traumatic event. Right, right. So, I mean, all this happened, you know, and let's fast forward here 
the final hearing or the hearing, they decided to do, you know, what my what my attorney said to give full custody to my husband, and I was kicked out of the house. I could not be around my children unsupervised. I was given seven hours a week of monitored visitation with both my sons. Now this lasted for 40 days and 40 nights. When we had another hearing on the 40th day, my attorney told me, don't even bother coming to court today. The status of your investigation hasn't changed. The criminal case is still open. Don't waste their time. I won't waste mine. And I tell my husband, and my husband says, I don't care what he says, we're going. So we go. My mom always came to every hearing. My mom was there. I sit outside that room, and my attorney calls me, where are you? And I'm at the courtroom. Like, okay, I'm on my way, might be able to do something. And then he hangs up on me. I tell everybody, I don't know what's going to happen. Something's going to happen. Everybody start praying. <laughs> praying, yes. So everybody starts praying. My mom is there. And not to mention, I forgot to mention, during these 40 days, I had a church in Brazil. A church that knew my father. A church of about 5,000 members. And when the pastor there found out what was going on here, he made the entire congregation stand up and put their hands to the north, North America, stand up and pray for our family. And the whole church fasted during those 40 days. <laughs> wow. That's so impressive. Yeah. They loved you and they loved your mom and they loved your dad. Your dad was a part of this process as well. Absolutely. You know, as part now, you know, looking back at that teenager and looking at myself now, you know, it was very humbling to think, you know, how blessed I was that I did grow up with this family where my father was beloved as a pastor, my grandpa was beloved as a pastor, my mom never wavered from her faith despite not having my dad around, and had I not had that foundation, I don't know how I would have survived what happened to me in this courtroom. <laughs> so your mom, other than standing by your side and, and saying, continually praying, were there other words or uh, actions that you can see, sense, and feel her to this day of her, her being a rock for you? Well, you know, when they took my son away, they released him to her. She was a public school teacher, and she was already fingerprinted. And, you know, again, mom to mom at this point. She would hold my son. She would carry my son. She would take him to her house. And I knew, at least I had, that comfort knowing that my son was with my mom and that he was going to be loved like no other, right, as opposed to him being with strangers. Oh, absolutely. And, and, I mean, thank God for my mom. <laughs> and another miracle from God, thank God that she was a public school teacher and that she was able to get him. Yeah, we haven't even been able to talk about that either. I love teachers, and teachers are so important. And, yeah, it, I, it seems like it was all just part of the plan, I guess. It uh, was. It, it certainly all the little stones were lined up to make that path in the right direction. Yes. So at that 40th day, right, the, my attorney said, if he went into the courtroom and he came out and he said, sign this, 
initial this, sign this, initial this, just back and forth, bringing papers back and forth, back and forth. I had no idea what I was signing, what I was initialing. I was just trusting God at this point. Four hours later, he comes back with a stack of papers, about 700 pages, and he tells me, if you're willing to sign this the way it's written today, they will let you go home. Now, at that point, I mean, if they told me to cut off my leg, I would have done it. Right? I just wanted to be home with my with family. Yeah. Yes. So I signed the papers, and he told me, I've been doing this for 23 years. I have never seen them let anybody go home before trial. You definitely have a higher power working for you. Oh, I got the chills. And, oh, that's <laughs> great. And my mom and my husband, I mean, everybody in that hallway, just hugging each other mm. and crying. Yeah, I bet. And praising God at that point. And you have become a, an advocate yeah. because, because of this, right? You have seen the, yes. the, the wherewithal in helping others. In helping others and... Again, I go back to my childhood. You know, my mom was a single mom. And my mom was working two to three jobs at a time in certain times, right? She was going to school. And there were times where I was not, you know, I didn't shower every day. I had holes in my shoes. I sometimes had to eat at the neighbor's house, right? And there were so many flashbacks in my life where I think of, oh, my God, you know, at any time, like, social services could have called this neglect. Right? The fact that I didn't have all the food in the house, the fact that I didn't have clean clothes, the fact that sometimes I had to go to work with my mom, just different little scenarios, which is what I witnessed when I was court-ordered to take a child abuse class. Nobody had intentionally abused their child. Right? There were moms who were working. There were playground accidents. There were bathtub accidents. I mean, there was even an incident of a 15-year-old posting naked pictures of herself on Instagram. And when her father disciplined her, he gets arrested. So I'm witnessing all these things, and I'm like, it would have destroyed me as a child to have been taken away from my mom. You know, everybody's standards of living are very different. And, of course, my life wasn't perfect. And I guess by American standards, we were considered poor. But by Brazilian standards, you have no idea what poor is. <laughs> yeah, I like that. So your so, mom... You know, I, Go ahead. So I just kept thinking, like, back to my mom. You know, my mom worked her butt off. And my mom did everything she could for me. And the helpers in our lives, you know, was not social services, was not the government, was not welfare. The helpers in our lives were the church, were our neighbors, were my friends from school, you know, if my mom needed a ride somewhere, somebody from church would pick us up and drop us off. If I needed clothes, people would give me gift cards from church. If I needed a babysitter, you know, go to the neighbor across the street. So that sense of community, right? And that's what I have advocated for. Like, if you see a mother who's in need, if you see a child who's in need, you know, go talk to that mother, and see how you can actually help this mother. Give her a home-cooked meal. Offer to babysit every once in a while. Give her money if she needs to buy something. You know, the Bible tells us to love one another and that he watches over the orphan and the widow. 
in many cases, these kids in foster care are not orphans. Right? There are family members who want to take care of them. They just don't have the financial resources to fight in this courtroom like I did. Yes, that's a huge difference between so many of these children, these families. But look how you're putting all of your ability to help others. You know, you learned a lot. It was a horrific experience, but you were able to turn it, turn the good to help others. And I like that part of the story, too. Yes, I did. And just so your audience knows, my sons are healthy. You know, <laughs> even my baby, who had the infant had the cranial fracture. He is in first grade, and he can read, he can write, he's perfect. So God, you know, took care of everything. Yeah. Wow. You know, part of me would love to be so jubilant and happy that this has a happy ending, but the, the undertones of it are horrific that it could happen. And yet Child Protective Services, their job is to protect children. But they really got this one wrong. They did. And from what I have witnessed, they have gotten it wrong a lot of times. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I'm sure that is definitely happening. Rachel Bruno, I thank you for sharing this story because I can't imagine it's easy for you to, to relive it every time you tell this story. But the perspective of your mom and the role that she played is always wonderful to hear. And please tell Teresa we send our best and thank her for being there by your side. I will. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm Jackie Tantillo, and this is Should Have Listened to My Mother. 